0: Now, for this month's special series on ReachMD, focus on future medicine. We're looking ahead to pivotal breakthroughs and technologies that will transform healthcare in the coming years. Robotic appendages sensitive enough to maneuver around organs, and wheelchairs being directed by a patient's brain waves. These are former science fiction fantasies that are now realities. How are these technologies already changing medicine, and should we have any ethical concerns about implementing these and other future medical innovations? You are listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining us to discuss his book on emerging medical technologies entitled The Edge of Medicine is Dr. William Hansen. Dr. Hansen is an anesthesiologist and chief of intensive care at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School as well as an Associated Faculty Member of the Computer Science Department at Princeton University. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Hansen.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You uh, cover a lot of very uh, interesting technologies and future possible developments in your book. Are there some in particular that uh, you think are important for us to know about or get excited about?
1: Well, I divided the book into uh, several chapters, and I constructed the book to in many ways of enabling technologies or enabling developments, not so much uh, individual advances, but uh, categories of of advances. And the first part of the book speaks in in some part to, to the same sorts of developments we've seen in other industries having to do with computer science, things like networks and artificial intelligence and data visualization, which I think are all beginning to uh, enter our world, but there is so much more to be had and so many ways in which these technologies can help us.
0: Certainly, uh, electronic medical records, and when I go to prescribe something, there's something that checks for uh, interactions and all. What what type of other ways could we have artificial intelligence and, and computers assisting us?
1: Well, the checking of prescriptions and making sure that we don't prescribe inappropriate drugs to a patient who has allergies are Critical functions, but they're relatively primitive from a computer science standpoint. Most of the audience will be aware of telemedicine and uh, its potential capabilities. And in the book, I've described a couple of ways or a couple of sort of categories of telemedicine, one of which is the store and forward approach, which is used by uh, radiologists, where an image is stored somewhere out on the network and then read in a disconnected fashion by radiologists who may be uh, located on the other side of the world. This is the Nighthawk model that many hospitals use. So Mm -hmm. there's a belief on the part of some people that the current model of radiology where you have employed radiologists may eventually give way to something where there's a Group of radiologists who are uh, outsourced in large part this could be <laughs> good news or bad news for some of the audience
0: right right, but you could get the world's uh, most authorities in in particular areas to read a person's x-ray regardless of where that uh, x-ray may be that image may be
1: where it is and when it is i mean it's very possible that you'll have one of the world's authorities at the other end of a link who um, can be called upon at need. And in fact, that's the way in which um, the Nighthawk model is described, that, that there was a need for a radiologist to happen to locate it on the other side of the world and a light bulb went, went off in somebody's brain. Mm-hmm. So that's the Storm Ford model. And then there are real-time models where the expert clinician is in a real-time link with the patient or with another physician. And some of the things that fit this category are things like intensive care telemedicine, where there's an intensivist who's monitoring, in some cases, over 100 beds, using smart software to guide him or her to patients who are in need at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another real-time link that's, that's actually in use at this point are uh, remote robotic surgeons. So the surgeon can be uh, located at some distance from the patient that he or she is operating on.
0: Certainly a step beyond the da Vinci model for prostate and other surgeries. Actually, the surgeon would not physically be at the bedside with the patient.
1: Right. But there's no reason. I mean, in in fact, the da Vinci model, the the, the surgeon is sitting several feet away from the patient and connected by wired links to the robotic device. And there's no reason why the surgeon needs to be in the same room as long as there's a reasonably capable assistant in the room that can help out. So you can imagine a very skilled surgeon of some discipline who is able to uh, operate from some central location on patients who are geographically at some distance.
0: Fascinating. The the advantages of that uh, certainly could be wonderful.
1: There is, in fact, a model where a surgeon who's done some research with NASA has done some surgery on a simulated space environment that's located in an undersea laboratory off of uh, Key West called NEMO. And uh, this surgeon has operated on a simulated patient using the same kind of link. And and, uh, the design is that those capabilities might be available to uh, astronauts in a space station.
0: That is fascinating. Are there other things within this computer telemedicine realm you'd like to mention?
1: Well, I think the two other categories that I mentioned in the book are artificial intelligence. And here there's a broad range of things that fall under that aegis. But smart machines that can act as assistants or act under the direction of clinicians are very likely to come. And the model in the real world for us are things like the autopilot on airplanes, Uh which are really just five or six smart computers that have fail-safe. If one of the computers goes down, the four others are there to back it up. And those computers control the rudders and the thrust and the ailerons and various parts of the plane in much the same way that a similar computer might control the administration of anesthesia, which is a field that I work in. In fact, there is something that uh, I saw recently called the McSleepy, which is a demonstration where a smart computer monitors the degree of paralysis and sedation of a patient using EEG and EMG of a sort and then administers the appropriate drugs more or less automatically. Mm, That's fascinating. And then the third field that I wanted to mention very quickly is data visualization. I work as an intensivist in the ICU, and much of what our nurses do in many of our ICUs is to transcribe data from what are essentially glorified oscilloscopes onto paper, and the paper record, then I come by on rounds, and I leaf my way through that paper record and try to make sense of what's happened to the patient over some period of time. There are electronic medical records that do this automatically, but they're essentially glorified spreadsheets, and what we really need is visualizations of that data where clinicians who are like humans, uh, very good at processing information visually are presented with that information in a way that they can sort of understand what's happened to that patient at a glance. So maps of the patient's blood pressure and laboratories and the like.
0: And this would go beyond graphs and uh, I'm trying to visualize what you're referring to that would give a visual picture of how the patient's doing.
1: Well, you could imagine three-dimensional maps that would take a number of different data streams and marry them into one field that the uh, clinician would then, you know, after a time, become familiar with what that three-dimensional data represents. Uh, you know, a picture of a patient in heart failure, for example, or a, p- a patient in sepsis would look very different if mm-hmm. the information were presented topographically or three-dimensionally in some way.
0: All right. So recognizing new uh, patterns or new ways of presenting data that would lead to particular diagnoses or conclusions about the patients.
1: Yeah. I mean, very briefly, as you know that. We basically take textual streams of numbers like the creatinine over time or the blood pressure over time or the heart rate over time and then, in a sense, work with what the trend of that information is and create a visual map of that for our own purposes. So if somebody did some of that work for us ahead of time, Using you know computers and panel displays and made pictures that that we could process more quickly. That would be much more informative than knowing that the blood pressure had gone from 138 over 71 to 142 over 75, mm-hmm.
0: if mm-hmm. you will. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman. And with us discussing his book on emerging medical technologies entitled The Edge of Medicine is Dr. William Hansen. Dr. Hansen is chief of intensive care at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Dr. Hansen, do you see certain fields in medicine where this would be less applicable? Think certain primary care or, or psychiatry may need that person-to-person touch a little more?
1: Well, yes and no. You mentioned two fields where there isn't an intuitive application of advanced technologies. But, you know, primary care clinicians, just like intensive care clinicians, uh, have to deal with streams of data. So, any way in which we can help them with distilling a thick medical record into a concise, presentation using some sort of computerized pre-processing would be of help to that primary care clinician. You know, you think of psychology or psychiatry as being the practice where you have the clinician maybe sitting in a chair across from the couch where the patient is laying, but there are in fact many applications of telepsychology and telepsychiatry where, for example, clinicians are working with patients in prisons or patients in locations that are otherwise difficult to reach. So they're able to extend their practice beyond the room in which they would otherwise typically work. So I think that technology has ways to help almost all of us, and we're going to have to move in that direction in the future.
0: That, to me, is very, very fascinating and makes great sense. Now, as we look at some of these possible innovations, are there certain things that you are worried about, certain abuses, certain questions we should be asking?
1: Well, in other parts of the book, I've talked, for example, about neural interfaces, where we have devices that already allow us to take brain waves and translate them into action. So one of my colleagues here at Penn has ALS and has sort of a skull cap of electrodes that allow his, allows him to uh, control the text on a computer screen, for example, and write where he's not able to talk because he's on a a ventilator. Mm -hmm. That's a fabulous advance. But you can imagine that other sort of neural interfaces, prosthetic eyes that allow us to see wavelengths that one might otherwise not be able to see or prosthetic ears that allow us to hear wavelengths, certain advances that might give us supernormal capabilities could take us to places we don't want to be in the future. You know, another example that occurs to me is if there were certain technologies that were potentially advantageous to a patient but were not what one might consider to be a baseline medical care, that there would be patients who are haves because they can afford to buy that extra something, a population of have-nots. And I think as, as, you know, the current financial environment shows us there are people that can't afford health insurance and there are other people that can afford to have things like plastic surgery and the like. So if in fact there were surgical techniques or prosthetics that the haves might choose to buy, that we get into a very uncomfortable situation in the future. And to give you a very precise example of that, what if there were a very expensive life-extending pharmaceutical that became available?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That, that to me is a very scary thought.
0: In regard to that, do you think it would be important to have some body, some committee, some organization to try to govern and, and organize some of these developments?
1: Well, I think that um, you know we have some significant responsibility to think about these things. And by wishing that they weren't so and believing that that will keep them from happening, I think that's not the way things work in the real world. Whether a committee or some organization is going to effectively stop that, I have skepticism about that, having worked with both committees and organizations that work in that field. But we're going to be faced with these issues.
0: Something like an FDA for genetic research for advances in computer technology that might be helpful, you feel?
1: Yeah, well, I think that somebody that looks at the advances that are already available and thinks about the ethical implications and at the very least publishes them in the way that I've sort of tried to highlight these same sorts of things in the book is a good thing because there has to be some public comment and some public awareness of the of of what's already upon us in some ways.
0: In terms of costs, which you have brought up, is the development for some of these technologies largely coming from private funds, from pharmaceutical companies, or or are there some governmental grants that are at work in developing these?
1: Well, I think there's a broad mix. I mean, I think some of the companies that I've worked with that have new technologies are, are startups that have done very well. Some of The advances we'll see in genomics and probably in stem cells uh, are being funded by or will be funded by a mix of governmental and pharmaceutical agencies. Some of the advances we'll see will come from uh, what we don't think of as traditional medical industries like Google, Microsoft, and Intel, all of whom are entering the market with different medically oriented products.
0: I would very much like to thank our guest from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, Dr. William Hansen. We've been speaking about his very exciting book called The Edge of Medicine. It is a book about emerging medical technologies. And Dr. Hansen has outlined some broad areas of advances as well as some of the specifics within those areas. And I think it's plain to see that there are some very exciting benefits in terms of improved health care that can be gained through these advances and then some cautions we have to be aware of as we go forward that Dr. Hansen also outlined for us. Thank you very much for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. This is on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Future Medicine. For
1: a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.